My name is Harmeet Malik. I'm a professor and co-associate director in the Division of Basic Sciences at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle. I'm an evolutionary geneticist by trade, but I dabble in a number of uh, different topics from microbiology uh, to speciation research. In this episode, we spoke with Harmit Malik about how he got into biology, books that inspired future scientists, and the importance of simply showing up. We discussed the Malik's lab research on genetic conflicts involving very diverse players, including centromeres, mobile genetic elements, retroviruses, and of course, the host's innate immune response. The Malik lab studies these in several different models, ranging from yeasts to primates. Thomas Lemberger joined the conversation to talk with Harmid about peer review, preprints, and EMBO's journal agnostic platform for manuscript review, Review Commons. Welcome to the EMBO podcast. Harmit started out as a chemical engineering student at the Indian Institute of Technology in Bombay. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Tiago. It's, uh, looking forward to this conversation. Um, just like many other important transitions uh, in life, I think my transition from chemical engineering to biology was chaperoned by a really fantastic mentor that I had. I had the pleasure of interacting with a mentor during my uh, time um, at IIT Bombay, where I was getting a degree in chemical engineering, but I was getting more and more interested in biology. And so I was introduced, uh, thanks to a chemical engineering professor, to a, a new professor who had just started at uh, the Institute, Professor K.K. Rao. And he, you know, got me interested in molecular biology. He was teaching a class on introductory molecular biology, but I couldn't attend the class because I had a clash with one of my required classes in chemical engineering. So he totally offered, uh, completely unsolicited, that if you come over in the afternoon, we can just chat, you know, over coffee. What he didn't mention was he was a chain smoker at the time. So, you know, in a one hour conversation, I had the equivalent of like one pack of cigarettes just sitting across from him, but it was totally worth it. You know, whatever damage it did to my lungs, because he was just a fantastic teacher. I think even after all these years, I've really not encountered anybody who had just this extremely seductive quality. He made even dry topics seem very interesting, but actually when he was teaching about the lac operon and the basic fundamentals of molecular biology, I was completely transfixed. And it became something that I felt like I, I could not pass up the opportunity to see whether this is something that I could actually spend the rest of my career in. So this this was not one, but multiple sessions, if I get it right. This was actually not, uh, yeah, this was uh, over the course of two semesters. So I would say roughly around 60 hours of completely, you know, uh, voluntary work. I was not his student. I just want to remind you, I was not in his department. I was not his student. Um, so he was just doing this. Uh, and then many years later, I think, uh, I kind of went back, you know, on his retirement uh, party, I, I went back and I had an occasion to really talk to him, you know, because I'm interested in what makes good mentors too, right? And I've had this experience of many good mentors in my life, and he was certainly one of the most uh, influential. And I asked him, why did you do that? I mean, recognizing now the number of time pressures that a typical academic had, you know, he just said that, you know, yes, it's true. I didn't think about like how much of a time commitment would be, but I was pretty certain that you would give up. Like I've had other students who came and then, you know, after a couple of hours, they stopped showing up because 
you know, you weren't doing this as part of a course requirement and stuff. So I figured that you will come for a few days and then you'll see that, okay, this is a lot of work. I'm going to stop coming in. But you never stopped. So I felt like I couldn't stop because like I, I had basically like uh, encouraged you to do this. Um, and so really that just uh, emphasizes the importance of simply showing up, you know, when you're supposed to. And that can actually make a pretty uh, important influence on your mentor and, and basically motivate them to kind of rise up to uh, be a good mentor for you as well. He didn't try switching to cigars at any point to see if he could get some peace. No. And, you know, honestly, I think that, you know, I mean, he was an academic in India and, you know, academics in India at that point were not paid enormously good salaries. That's been rectified a little bit. So I, I think that was pretty much the, you know, upper limit of what he could afford given the frequency of his uh, habit. Luckily, he's actually given up, you know, that's the other really amazing thing he did, which was he completely quit, um, uh, more recently, you know, I think his uh, daughter had a six, more significant influence than his spouse did. So, yeah, that's fantastic. And how how then? So it's already a big jump from to this uh, personal tutoring program. How did you find the topic for your PhD in the U.S.? Well, I that was I have to credit another gentleman whom I've actually never met in person, which is. Uh, Mr. Richard Dawkins, because he, he, he published this, uh, you know, series of books. But the one that actually had the most profound impact on me was the selfish gene, because at the same time as I was reading about the fundamentals of cell biology and molecular biology, I was reading about selfishness in biology. And those two views were so completely contrasting with each other, where one view was this perfectly engineered, you know, Swiss watch like, you know, interlocking gears, everything works together. Um, and it needs to for the cell and the organism to survive. And on the other hand, you had all of these genes that were basically hijacking the rest of the genome and the cell for their own self interest. And I was just so struck by this complete contrast, you know, opposite sort of themes, one was of complete cooperation, and one was of complete conflict. And I just thought that, you know, it's actually really wonderful to look at this topic and consider that, I you know, there might be a way to reconcile this if you actually just look a lot closer. And that became, you know, I, I didn't think about this as a elaborate sort of theme for myself, but that became effectively the driving force for most of my career, including my topic of choice in my PhD, where I was very interested in mobile genetic elements. These are elements like transposable elements that jump around in the genome and create havoc, but they do so because they are still increasing their own um, copy number um, uh, in the in the genome. So the genome is their ecosystem. Um, and I realized that the mobile elements provided a really good opportunity for me to look both at the evolutionary dynamics of these selfish elements, but also at the molecular biology of their mechanism. So I basically, you know, completely like a naive student applied to all of the big names in transposable element uh, biology from India, having had no background um, and really no biology classes on my transcript. And luckily for me, there were at least a couple of people who decided to take a chance. A small parenthesis here. I'm curious because there used to be a this tradition, as, as you're mentioning, people would name books that really drove them to their field of research, going all the way back to the microbe hunters in, in, in the 20s. Um, you, you're now a mentor and you've been a mentor for, for quite some time. Do you still encounter that? Do and, and if so, what books are people referring to nowadays? Yes, I actually think that tradition is uh, completely alive and well. And uh, we used to have the situation where a lot of the books were primarily written by academics who were in the field. I mean, Richard Dawkins is an academic uh, of, of some repute. 
But what's actually a new tradition, which actually has, you know, really blossomed is we have professional science writers, gifted writers like Ed Young and Carl Zimmer and others. So in addition to the academics who are beautiful and persuasive in their writing, we have people who are just gifted with words who write about topics related to science. And I actually think that, you know, the, the sobering reminder is that no matter how many papers you publish and, you know, the number of uh, scientific discoveries you make, the actual impact that will have in a larger sense of a really good science book is, you know, there's no comparison. A good science book is going to actually have a much more profound impact on educating the public and inspiring the next generation of scientists. In my own life, even though this was not related to biology, uh, the TV show Cosmos by Carl Sagan had such a profound impact. There was an entire generation of uh, people like me growing up at the time who became enamored with the concept of a career in science. And that was completely inspired by a physicist talking about the mysteries of the universe. So I think this is a very underestimated uh, thing and it hasn't gone away. Actually, the Internet has probably made it um, a little hard to discover the true gems because there's so much stuff out there. But on the other hand, if you're a genuinely curious student, there is a lot uh, that is available. Um, I feel obligated to ask, given this uh, sort of passionate defense of the book. Um, and at one point on Twitter, you joked about your your editor. I don't know if it or agent. I don't know which one. Are you working on a book? Uh, well, uh, I am actually working on a book, but my um, my ultimate plan was actually to devote most of last year to writing uh, chapters of a book about ancient viruses in our genome, etc. Uh, however, you know, the best laid plans were like way late. And ironically, I thought I would have more time to work on the book, but there were so many uh, small and moderately sized fires to put out that I mostly just focused on uh, the mental well-being of my family, myself and my lab more so than taking some time. I mean, writing a book is... Um, you know, you might think that, you know, as you know, like you're an excellent writer yourself. So it's not the kind of thing which you can do on a kind of a part time basis. It really requires uh, some time to really get in. Um, and unlike others who are gifted enough that their first draft reads like poetry, for me, it is it is something that requires work. Like I need to chisel away at it uh, multiple times and get better. And there are definitely times when it's very frustrating. So it, it, it helps to devote some time to it. And some of my academic colleagues who are much more organized than me have been able to do so. I mean, I'm, I'm just impressed by how much they're able to drive their own science as well as, you know, write uh, amazing books. I was not able to do that. And I'm hopeful that, that I will be able to do that uh, next year. I hope you do. I mean, I know a lot of people be looking very much forward to that. Um, so getting back now to, to, to our main line here. So then you were working on, on retrotransposons. And after that, suddenly we see you working on centromeres and on, and, and out comes this really interesting concept that somehow brings the selfish gene uh, sort of preoccupation and centromeres together, which is, uh, I think what you termed centromeric drive at, at one point. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I'd be happy uh, to, do, to do that. Actually, towards the end of my PhD, what was uh, kind of a transformative moment for me was like stumbling upon the sort of field of transposable elements, even though it was a naive entry. I, it came at a time when a lot of sequence databases were being developed. And so I became very interested in the relationships between these selfish elements, how they evolved, what was their origins. And that's primarily what I focused on during my PhD. 
And I became more and more interested in deep homology searches. You know, how far back could you use? Um, uh, and now, you know, with tools like AlphaFold and Cyblast, it's becoming easier to peer further and further back, you know, billions of years of protein evolution that you can go back. At the time, it was not so easy. You had to have your own tools. And I became interested in the lab of Steve Hanikoff because he had developed um, these remote homology detecting programs, uh, the Blocks database, for example. Um, except when I interviewed in his lab, he was very interested in having me interview, but he told me he was getting out of that business because NCBI had become so good that he didn't really feel that he had something super original to contribute there. So here I was, I had traveled across the country. I was really like excited about working with Steve Hanukov because even like a one hour conversation with him just convinces you that this is just a amazing force of nature, but he was not going to be working on the topic that I was actually interested in working on. But he told me about these other topics that he had going on. And then he told me about centromeres. And this is a complete coincidence, which I still to, to this day cannot believe it was such good luck on my part, where he told me about this project that he had worked on, where these histone proteins that are completely essential for chromosome segregation, the so-called centromeric histones, were, were basically evolving very unusually fast for a histone molecule. Histones are actually so well conserved that the amoeba histone and the human histone are only two amino acids apart. I mean, they're basically essentially frozen in evolution, whereas the centromeric histones were evolving so fast that you could barely align them um, in many cases across different lineages. And then I had just read this paper from Chuck Langley's lab, which had talked about the potential conflict between chromosomes um, during a female meiosis and during the formation of eggs where, you know, out of the four products of meiosis, only one of those products is destined to be transmitted to the next generation. And it, it totally clicked for me. And I, I can totally remember this because this was such a transformative moment in my professional life. We were having dinner after my first day of interviews over at this Turkish restaurant. Uh, it was Steve Hanikoff and his wife, Georgia, who's an amazing computational biologist. And before we knew it, the restaurant was closing because we had just been locked into discussion of this, uh, this paper, the, the, this paper, the, and Steve's observation that I was like getting more and more convinced this was the explanation and we could test this. And it would actually also explain why the centromeric histones were rapidly evolving, but also the bigger paradox, which is why centromeric DNA, which is actually completely essential, so rapidly evolving, you know, base pair for base pair, it's the most rapidly evolving parts of our genomes. And I, nobody really said this in an overt way, but at the end of that dinner, I had a, another day of interviews in his lab but I think I knew and Steve knew that I was going to come to this lab because this was just like, this was such an organic moment. And, you know, I just feel so lucky that even though it was completely driven by like complete circumstance, you know, and serendipity, um, and this was not the project that I'd applied to work with Steve for, I was just so lucky that this uh, project and even my ability to contribute to that project had come about because of completely random reading. It's interesting. At one point, you referred to it in in another interview as the the potential one of the potential answers to Darwin's great mystery, right? So, well, as many people have noted over the last hundred something years, the origin of species never really explains the origin of species. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I mean, I think there are certainly many observations, but I think one of the, the sort of one of the mysteries of, of, of Darwin was, you know, if you want to increase the reproductive fitness, um, 
why would you ever create barriers between you and members of your population? And um, the transformative idea actually came from two papers, uh, from one from Steve Frank and the other from uh, Lawrence Hurst and, and Pomakowski, which they basically pointed out that perhaps selfish elements that are interested in their propagation could actually artificially lead to the situation where you have these boundaries that get created. And of course, what, what I was proposing was, well, you could actually have selfish elements for something completely fundamental. These are not rogue mercenaries in the genome, but even fundamental components of cell biology, like the centromeres, could be acting as selfish elements. And suddenly, basically, I took these two ideas, one, you know, which was like completely coming from Frank and Hurst and Pomakowski, and then the other coming from our own work on centromeres being potentially selfish to recognize the cell cannot escape. This is just an inherent part of the biology where something completely fundamental could be itself responsible for creating reproductive barriers. In a way, again, the timing was good because when Frank and Hurston Pomakowski had proposed their conflict-driven speciation model, it was definitely not a popular model among evolutionary biologists because they felt that it had to be a lot more complex, etc. But now I think the field believes that whether the conflict is between the nuclear genome and the mitochondrial genome or between different nuclear genome, or like in our case with centromeres and heterochromatin, that is a universal theme that conflict-driven biology or conflict between different genetic entities is really at the heart of uh, creating some of these reproductive barriers. I mean, it's amazing it, given how, how this field has evolved and, and how so much of it actually due to, to great work from, from you and, you and your colleagues. When you look at the diversity of different conflicting genetic elements, it looks miraculous that there is a cohesive or semi-cohesive genome at all. <laughs> it really looks like one giant centrifugal force going all the time, every, every little base pair for itself almost. Yeah, I mean, I can make the analogy between like a settler population, right, like which has to band together to fight off all of these mercenaries and bandits that are constantly invading the village. It's in the best interest of the villagers to band together. Otherwise, they're going to be taken apart one by one. So I sort of view in a in a sort of old Western or uh, old kind of Kurosawa film kind of way that the genome is really divided into the bandits and the people who are fighting the bandits and that occasionally the bandits become part of the village and occasionally the villagers become bandits themselves, which creates, <laughs> ma makes life a lot more interesting. Well, it, and, and sometimes you have, yeah, exactly that becoming part of the village uh, side of the story, which is super interesting when the bandit is now uh, the baker in the village, that's when you get a placenta out of it or something. Exactly. And it's, 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 it's incredible. I mean, just how far this has come in the last 30 years. And, and to come to one of our topics to, to review commons, um, in a very circuitous way, um, I saw one of your, your uh, recent presentations online at the Hutch, where you're talking about um, where where you're displaying this large discontinuity in in the number of active um, uh, retro elements and, and retroviruses in the human genome versus the rest of even even primates, uh, even uh, the larger primate family, and and this was this was so unexpected, right? This is largely what tanked the NCI cancer program in the '70s, was you thought we were going to go from Peyton Rouse to the retroviruses that cause cancer, and that would be that. And 
as, as a side effect, we got all of the HIV research field and all of HIV therapy. So it's not so bad, but still, this was a, this was a giant, giant unexpected thing between the chicken that was brought to Rockefeller and the realization by the time that in the early eighties that you have HTLV one, two, three, sort of, not actually, it's, it's HIV, but, um, it's incredibly poor in, in, in the human, in human physiology, active, uh, endogenous retroviruses. Why is that? Uh, I think it could be a number of different questions. I do think that the, uh, effective population size of the host, uh, plays a very key role in terms of vertical and horizontal transmission of these elements. And I think the nature of the dispersed populations that we've gone through or our ancestors have gone through probably played a key role in the extinction of a number of these lineages um, as it kind of, kind of happened. I mean, a very similar argument can be made about why some viral pathogens become less virulent. You know, there's a, a debate going on right now because of SARS-CoV-2 is that is that on its way to becoming less virulent. And there's actually really good theory work that people just fail to cite all the all the time, which is criminal given how uh, high quality it is, where really it's not even a viral determinant. Actually, the, the, the key determinant of whether a virus is going to evolve a virulence is whether it's in a population where it has ready access to new hosts or it runs the risk because of this hypervirulence of extinguishing the host population that it absolutely needs for its own propagation. And the, the good news or the bad news, as you might see it, is that, you know, we live in an age where a human adapted virus has got no uh, dearth of new hosts to kind of um, interact with. And so this is a little bit of a, you know, yes, the, the, this is going to become an endemic virus. But to to predict that this is definitely on its way to a virulence actually just reflects uh, a a poor uh, you know knowledge or perhaps a little bit more of a rosy view of what uh, actually happens with virus evolution. Well, and and I I guess there are several other factors. One is people forget the time scale uh, to putative endemicity is is great if it works from the evolutionary point of view. Not so good uh, looking at the history of, of recent human viruses. Yeah, the, the, I, I would also just like to make the point, you know, it's, it's interesting that we have so many people who are suddenly believers in Darwinian evolution because we're seeing this in real time. But the thing that people forget is that Darwinian evolution is very bloody. You know, the fact that you get selection for 1% of the population, it's because 99% of the population was basically killed off by the pathogen. And that's a very high cost. And when you put it in those terms, you sort of recognize, wow, we're really talking about a pretty high burden here, which is something that I wish that more public health and epidemiology people would like incorporate into their thinking. You know, the, here's the case where the evolutionary biologist has got more humanist tendencies than the public health professionals. Well, and somehow, the, the, in, in the middle of all this, endemic also became a benign word. So HIV is endemic to equatorial Africa. Plasmodium is endemic. I mean, trypanosomes are endemic. None of these are, are good things to have. And, you know, if you, if you pull out the anti, uh, antiretroviruses, antiretrovirus, excuse me, you'll see very quickly just how benign uh, endemic HIV is in, in, you know, in, in, in equatorial Africa. So yeah, I, I refer to it as like a negotiated truce. I mean, herpes viruses in our own genome are a perfect example of that, right? We've kind of co-evolved with them for hundreds of millions of years. And, you know, they're trying their best not to like hurt their host very much. But if you get into a situation where you're 
even transiently immunocompromised, like we see in our, you know, institution with people who are going through cancer therapy, wow, they come raging back and they're not really good, you know, viruses to have coming back in a, in a big way. So these are not viruses that have like defanged themselves. They have basically been driven to this impasse because of the immune system that we've basically come up with. And it's a constant battle. It's not the thing where the battle is over. The battle has just reached this impasse where both of them are at their, uh, you know, at their respective boundaries, just waiting for any sign of weakness on the other side. You've sent so many great manuscripts to to review Commons. One of them is is this Apobec three um, paper, it, it, and uh, and I it, it reminds me a bit of something you were saying earlier in the conversation about um, not just domesticating things, but sometimes using uh, the uh, the tools of the potential pathogens or the selfish genetic elements as a defense against them. Right? Could you tell us a little bit about this paper? Yes, so I'd be very happy to. So this is a paper that was actually sort of a joint product of my lab and a recently graduated postdoc, Rick McLaughlin's lab. And we were very interested in uh, apobec proteins. Apobecs, for, for people who don't know, are these cytidine deaminases that target retroviruses and uh, retrotransposable uh, elements during a stage in their life cycle where they're single-stranded DNA. And they introduce mutations. And if you introduce enough mutations in that genome, you can basically render the virus essentially ineffective. So you can kill the virus by poisoning um, its uh, genetic lineage, if you will. And what we discovered was that, yes, there are these apobec proteins that are in the genome, and we think about them as the normal intron-carrying apobec proteins, but there were also these additional sort of idiosyncratic apobecs that we were finding in the genome that lacked introns. And, you know, since we know that the ancestor was intron-bearing and the you know, the daughter gene, if you will, were intron lacking. We know that this must be the product of a reverse transcription itself, where the apobec gene was first converted into RNA, and that RNA was then reverse transcribed and integrated in the genome. And what we basically found was that there was this um, actually incredible proliferation, not just once, but throughout, and it's actually ongoing in many primates, including in marmosets, where Apobec repertoires are constantly expanding. It's almost as if the genome has taken advantage of this resident selfish element, the line one retrotransposon, and is actually using it to like almost as a homeostatic mechanism, increase the um, amount of apobec diversity that it has to defend against the very retrotransposons that gave birth to, to the retrogene in the first place. So it's almost as if it's got this pressure cooker-like system, if you've got a lot of retrotransposons that are unchecked, you're going to make a lot more apobec retrogenes. And then once there is a lot of apobec retrogenes, they will quiet, you know, they will quiet down the retrotransposons. So it's this almost like beautiful inbuilt homeostatic mechanism in many genomes from our closest relatives. It's It's got an interesting parallel in, in the adaptive immune system where the most accepted model is that we have antibodies and, and T-cells because of a diversification mechanism that is not not a deaminase but a recombinase that that was also domesticated probably um, transposon um, and one of the one of the things I wanted to 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 go over with you um, because in in a recent event with the Whitehead Postdoc Association you'd said that uh, one of the things you appreciated about this model of, of review commons where you submit you get the reviews and then you say what you will or will not do to the editors downstream right and that saves time that that avoids confusion 
Um, and in, so, and, and I was looking through the files of, of this, of this paper, which, uh, which is on eLife. And it has the uh, the review files at, at the bottom. I think everyone should always have a look at these when, when they're available because they're, they're a great tutorial, not just for the science, but also for people who, who want to learn how to peer review. Um, and one of one of those cases here was a reviewer, I think number one, was saying, well, great, these are great predicted uh, structures, but can you do functional assays for 20 of them? And And what happened after that? Well, you know, uh, in a way, there, uh, multiple things happened at the timing of the review. Like it was our first experience with review comments. I was really excited by the idea. But then also, you know, we were unable to do many of these experiments because we were not permitted to be in the lab. And different journals took, uh, I would say, a graded uh, view of uh, how sanguine they are with what is really critical. And what was lucky here was both the, I think the reviewers were 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 quite uh good in the sense that they looked at both the positive and the sort of what the missing pieces in in the work. We actually looked at those missing pieces and we ourselves actually parsed into, okay, some of these missing pieces are absolutely critical for our story to be complete. Like there were holes uh, and admittedly, the, the there were holes in terms of making sure that the logic was absolutely crystal clear. There were other things that would be really nice to have, but given that we had such a limited um, amount of time that we could go back into the lab, we basically parsed it into, we will do these things. Some of these things can be done computationally. And then the limited amount that we needed to do with wet lab access, we could do. Um, but we basically did that ahead of time. So rather than doing like a revision plan, we said, look, we don't want to submit this until we've taken care of this. And then we submitted this and we said, look, if the editor feels that this additional work, which we felt was uh, was good, but not necessarily re relevant to the main thesis of paper, if the editor felt like it was necessary, we would do this. But we made the case that we don't necessarily think that this is necessary for the, the main thesis of our paper. And luckily for us, the editor, you know, at the time at, at eLife, um, they felt that yes, I think you've made your case. I think you've done the work that we feel you need to do to um, uh, have made you know your case a lot more airtight. And yes, while these are really excellent um, additional experiments, you know they could easily be a follow-up a paper rather than something that needs to belong. Um, you know that that paperback paper is a really good example, but there are even other uh, really excellent examples where there was. You know, the, the reviewers were not necessarily uh, all like thinking the same. And, and so we had like a like a lot of reviewers. They're very constructive. But, you know, if you had done all of that work, that would be like almost two papers worth. So there we basically said we are going to come up with a revision plan. And this is something that we will do. And this is something that we will do if the editor feels it's completely necessary. And we sent that, you know, again, as it turns out, to eLife. Um, and there again, it was really great because the editor essentially looked at our proposed revisions, which we had not done, and they they agreed with all of them, and they added one of the what we considered uh, potentially optional ones. They said you should do this because we think this is really important, and having that in hand is such a great sort of uh, thing because you know there's not uncertainty, there's not a changing. You know the most frustrating thing about um, some of this process is that you do your work, you do your due, due diligence with reviews, you go back and now you've got either a new set of reviewers or a reviewer who says, ah, oh, this is great, but you know, how about you do this additional thing? 
and and then you sort of realize that it's a red queen like you're constantly chasing this uh, myth of, uh, of of like the perfect paper which you know i mean it's a continuum and so having the certainty as i said in this uh event that we had with the whitehead postdoc association is almost the best part of this process is that you know whether it's a refereed preprint or it's it's this conversation that you've already had with the editor about what is what is needed for this paper to meet whatever that bar is for acceptance you're working with that sort of certainty in mind and you may not be able to meet the bar and we certainly were not able to for one paper for completely technical reasons we could not do it and even then it's good because now it's clear like the editor does want this and so if he can't do this we will basically adjust our sort of uh, sites uh, accordingly and so not just for cases in which you know the paper eventually got accepted you know we we've had i think thomas can correct me but we've had i think nine papers go through um review comments now and eight of the nine were accepted in the first you know journal that we actually submitted to one of them was not but the but the one that was not is almost the best advertisement for why review commons is so good uh, because that one was rejected within 24 hours and we were given an option of another really excellent journal uh, which did not require this experiment which we had basically failed to do for technical reasons so again this certainty because in a 48 hour period we submitted our paper, got it rejected, had a conversation with the editor of the second journal who was on board with our revision plan. And now we had like a path forward. And that is worth its weight in gold. I can tell you as uh, if you talk to a practicing academician who's already invested, you know, many man years of work into a project, having that certainty, this is a path towards success and publication is is really great. Um, and uh, I think in a way, uh, you know, the exception really proves the worth of, of uh, something like Review Commons. Review Commons project leader Thomas Lemberger asked Harmit to tell us a little bit more about his views on the interplay or tension between peer review for scientific quality and journal fit. I'm I'm curious. You mentioned, you know, this concept of you you are not sure that the paper will meet the bar of a given journal, and and you mentioned this concept of a of a revision plan where the authors can say, you know, I intend to do this, and and these are experiments that I I I am not able to to do, or maybe also I disagree that they are absolutely essential for for my conclusions, and we we have a lot of discussions internally whether. The sort of journal agnostic philosophy of of the peer review at Review Commons, how how pure and how fanatic we we should uh, we should keep with that, that that principle, and whether it might be an advantage that either the authors or, or the reviewers would provide suggestions of which journal might be suitable for for a, a given manuscript, or maybe the authors could pitch. Um, the manuscript for a range of journals and, and then the, the reviewers could comment as a function of, of this pitch or whether we should really keep to, to our ethos of, of journal agnostic and, and really separate the work on the science from the peer reviewers and then the editors of the journals have this function of curation, editorial selection, aggregation and, and essentially having this dialogue with the authors on, on what is the bar of that specific journal. So where, where would you stand? Would you stay 
pure or, or should we sort of have a, a, a little bit more of a compromise? Yeah, it's an excellent question, Thomas. Obviously, this is a little bit above my pay grade, but I can give you the perspective of an author that the journal agnostic process has been one of the best features to us as a as a submitter for that. Because essentially, you know, the, the problem is that if you can be guaranteed that the reviews and the comments you're going to get are going to be the same, whether this paper was targeted to EMBO or eLife or PLOS Biology versus PLOS One, you know, then it, I think it's it's a problem. The problem is that once the whole problem with the review system, um, which is sort of journal driven, is once you start reviewing a paper for, let's say, cell or nature or science, you've automatically formed an impression in your head about what kind of paper appears in these journals. And, and now you're not just evaluating the paper that you have, you're actually evaluating it from against your subjective impression of what needs to be in the paper. And what is actually great in many of our cases uh, is that we were, um, we were basically evaluated by experts, um, that told us about what they felt. And, and in, it's not like they were always uniformly complementary. In some cases, they basically said, look, this is a, this has the makings of a great paper, but there are these really important controls that you have not done. So it's not that they were like, pushovers in any respect, but they were really focused on our story and what we needed to do to make it complete, rather than this sort of pretty arbitrary bar. Um, and the nice thing about that is that that review process and those sets of reviews are static. Now the editorial look at whether that's actually uh, good enough for their journal, that process is short because the reviews are already there and we can port those to multiple journals if needed. The problem with the uh, with the journal sort of non-agnostic view is that the editorial process and the review process are intertwined mm -hmm. and often need need to be restarted because the it's hard to get over the bias that the reviews uh, reviewers had in the first place because they were reviewing for what they think is a quote unquote high impact journal. And they're basically measuring against that artificial bar rather than actually just measuring the work as is uh, in front place. And that's one of the best things about, you know, preprint and bioarchives uh, as well is that, you know, you think what you think is your best work in its form of completion and you put it out for the world to see. Um, because you, you know, you're already willing to stake your reputation by putting that paper out for, for everybody. And, um, in a way, you're doing the same thing when you submit it to a journal. But I, I totally understand there is, whether we like it or not, there is a hierarchy in the journal in terms of desirability. The problem is that that desirability then actually changes, um, not just the subjective opinion of the reviewer, but sometimes what they feel is the objective opinion of the reviewer. So it's actually, it's, it's, it's kind of, for me, it can be hard, uh, to remove that, uh, subjective opinion from the review process. So I really love the journal agnostic view. I am an editor on a number of journals myself, and I do see, um, cases where this paper, and I have, I have to step in because, you know, they are sort of even making this explicit or implicit judgment of, is this paper good enough? for this journal rather than is this paper really saying something cool and new and novel um and many editors are not willing to do that because it's you know it's too much trouble to go against the reviewer's subjective opinion yeah. so i mm -hmm. i love that feature that it's journal agnostic right mm -hmm. now 
Um, I think it may not be completely out of the question to uh, recommend reviewers to suggest journals, and they can do that either online or offline. But there again, I think the reviewers' own subjectivity about what their impression of this journal is will creep in. And and reviewers, authors tend to be completely unconservative where, where they want their papers to appear for good reason. Reviewers actually tend to be on the other end of the spectrum. They tend to be a little bit more conservative. Unless you get somebody who's just totally blown away by the novelty of the paper, they tend to maybe underestimate um, what the paper might be, even though they think objectively the paper is very good. But it's a subjective opinion about which journal it yeah, should actually sure. appear in. Sure, sure. So, so you mentioned, you know, posting a, a preprint is is a big step right you you reveal your 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 paper your science your your research your results potential mistakes in the public and it takes a little bit of courage right it's it's a, it's an important step and with review comments we we also provide the the opportunity to post the reviews then next to the preprint so what what has been your experience and maybe also of the of the younger uh, people in, in your lab, are they comfort comfortable doing that or do they hesitate a lot? Um, wh what's your feeling? Yes, so this is where there is definitely a lot of distribution um, of uh, opinions. Uh, so for example, for the of the nine papers that we submitted to Review Commons, we, we had already posted preprints on BioArchive for eight of them. For one of them, we didn't do that because, uh, you know, I was not able to convince the first author that the, you know, the pros outweighed the cons. And, and it can happen, particularly in fields which are really fast moving and you're really kind of worried. Uh, you know, ironically, actually, in those fields, it makes more sense to post preprints because they're fast moving enough that you get a timestamp based on when you put your paper up, you know, the, and, um, you know, things related to CRISPR Cas9 based engineering, et cetera. We are seeing more and more examples of, uh, you know, very different groups that come up with very similar conclusions and are often putting uh, preprints, you know, within a day of each other. Yeah. Um, so I think I think there are very few cons related to putting reviews up. There have been a few cases where we've delayed putting the pre the uh, reviews, mostly because I said they were actually instances where something pretty fundamental in terms of a control uh, had not been done according to the reviewer to the to the best quality possible. And there we felt like, you know, it is actually possible if we did the controls as the review wanted, uh, a, a fundamental aspect of the paper could change. And so we felt like we needed to do at least that experiment before we felt comfortable sharing everything. You know, in a oh, way, that's interesting, yeah. um, the, the, the review process is as much uh, about asking your best you know, opinion, the best opinions from people who you think are the experts in the field. And if that's what I mean about parsing, like if we feel like this is really fundamentally critical to the validity of our argument, I feel more comfortable having done those experiments yeah. and before I put it out, because I also don't want to mislead, you know, my, sure, my sure, colleagues. Sure. Um, it's no, no, no interest to anybody to have possibly wrong claims and, exactly, and prefer exactly. to, to revise the paper and 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 have a solid uh, thing to to well in each case it turns out that we you know even though we had not done the perfect control when we did do the perfect control it was fine um but i also felt like uh, i i needed to uh be in a situation where we didn't need to backtrack a lot of uh things because then it gets very difficult so that's that's been the thing where we don't put it up instantly 
but we basically uh, and I also feel really comfortable putting a revision plan and if that's there I'm, I'm happy to share it also um some people are more interested in making that conversation as private as possible I can understand that because they're trying to not influence uh subsequent editors who will see this um I just feel like I want to make sure that we are on very solid ground and then as I said there's always going to be optional experiments and and I'm okay with the world knowing that because there are actually often experiments we love to do after the paper is uh, already published because it's you know as I said everything is a continuum it's not like the mm -hmm. paper is the last word on that particular topic so so I'm sure yeah, that you serve very frequently as as a reviewer and of course you receive a lot of reviews on on your own manuscripts so Peer reviewers, they have a very tough job, right? On on one hand, they want to be as constructive as possible. They really want to help the authors to make the paper better. And so they, they want to be the nice guys. On the other hand, they also have to be sort of, they have this sort of formal role to see if the evidence, if the reasoning is correct, if, if there is a flaw. And so they have really to dig and to, kind of challenge, right? This is part of science, is to challenge and see, is that really true? So so what's your feeling about being, you know, the nice dude and and being the the rigorist, you know, analytical guy who is, you know, who is very strict? So, so how do you combine those two aspects? So uh, this is a great question. I actually think that those are not as opposed to each other, Thomas, as you think. Because in both cases, I feel like my job as a reviewer, whether I identify myself or not, is to make sure that my colleagues who have written this paper have not made a mistake that they will regret later. You know, it, it's fine if you get your paper into a really high-profile journal, but if two years later somebody discovers a fundamental flaw in that paper you know, all of the goodwill you earned with writing this really beautiful high-profile paper is completely, you know, it becomes a complete negative. So I want to make sure that, you know, just like I would do for a colleague down the hall from me when I'm reading their paper, I want to make sure that I give them constructive feedback, but I also want to make sure that the paper as it stands is solid enough that it'll withstand the test of time. And, and I sort of don't view those as being adversarial roles. Where it becomes adversarial, um, is actually where, um, you then evaluate the totality of the paper in context of like how important is it to, to the field. And then you make a subjective judgment about is this innovative enough? Does this meet this bar that this journal has set for impact? That's a completely subjective opinion. Some people are a lot more uh, difficult to please. Others are easier to please. Ironically, and perhaps unsurprisingly, journals like to go after the people who are going to be hard to please because they can only publish uh, you know, a very small subset of the uh, papers that they get. Um, but also, you know, people can take a, a view that, you know, this is this is a great paper in my field. And it will bring attention to my field. So I should be more encouraging. So that's a self-interest driven thing. Or ironically, well, there's only going to be one paper in my field published in a high profile journal. Why should it be this paper and why not my paper? And that's a self-interest <laughs> in the opposite direction. Uh, so I'm just saying that the decision about whether the paper is um, accurate does not have to be an adversarial decision. But the decision of whether the paper is appropriate for this journal there's there's inherent bias in that. There's no way to actually get around that, which is why I like the 
bioarchive and the review commons model, which is that we're going to evaluate the paper as it is without mm. sort of thinking about where this should eventually end up. I mean, in, in a way, we try really to help also the journals making that decision by by asking the reviewers, you know, to comment about what we say, the significance, the, you know, what kind of... What kind of advance has been made? Is it a methodological advance? Is it a conceptual advance? Is it, you know, degree of coverage? Uh, how does it compare to the existing literature? In a, in a way, we try to sort of find, you know, a, a path to for, for the reviewers to describe the significance in an as objective way as possible. Of course, it remains slightly subjective, you know, with regard to the background of the reviewer. But but we try to to provide a little bit of a framework how to express that you know even if it's just focused on the on the science. Do you think this is this is working? Do you, do you think that the editors have enough information and to to make their call? Is that helping the judgment? I think I I think it is. Uh, I I can speak both as an author, but also I've um you know I've received papers that have been transferred, for example, to Plus Genetics from Review Commons and. In you know, in two out of three instances, uh, the uh, the the paper was completely acceptable as is. You know, the authors had made a few revisions, and we spent two days at the journal before the paper was accepted. In one case, the authors you know had to do a lot more, so they came up with a revision plan. And you know, in again, in you know, two to three days, we said the revision plan is acceptable, and then a couple of months later, the paper was accepted. Again, I think it's just giving people like this path to things. I mean, I can tell you as an author, we've taken snippets of those significant statements that the reviewers have written, and as part of our pitch to the uh, cover letters to the to the journals as well. I mean, I'll just tell you though that the um, there have been cases, you know, so the decision of whether to send it to review commons or to send it directly, let's say to eLife or PLOS Biology. Um, there have been papers that we've actually sent to eLife, which were not reviewed or editorially rejected. And, and completely to my surprise, in fact, I think like literally one of the best papers the lab has published, so surprising that we actually, I never do this, but I challenged the decision. I said, like, are you really sure? I mean, this is super important, but you know, and, and the editor is extremely good. You know, it's not like they're not, uh, you know, aware, but they're, they're looking at the paper from what it doesn't have rather than what it has. So we said, okay, let's send it to review comments. I mean, at review comments, it had like glorious reviews, right? Like there were four reviews. They were absolutely glorious. They focused again. They did also have some of the same inquiries that the editor had about what we had not done, but they actually also said what we had done. And I am 100% confident that if we had those reviews and had gone to eLife with them, we would have been accepted. But, you know, and, and, and there's no harm. I mean, the paper ended up in a fantastic journal um, eventually anyway. But it just tells you that it's always good to not be wearing that hat of like, oh, is this an eLife paper? I think it's really good to evaluate it like, okay, what's the paper? And then say, wow this sounds like an e-life paper and that's the process which having the scrutiny being more detailed in the beginning rather than at the end you know it changes the process this is what i'm saying it's not the same process anymore um you cannot give the same detailed scrutiny that you would with four really detailed reviews in hand um and that's where i think review commons i mean honestly no, don't see any reason why we would be sending papers to any place else because of the advantage it actually puts 
in the author's bag. It is in your advantage to actually have. And, you know, the, the thing is, if you get reviews that you don't like, fine. You can, you can, you know, pull your, uh, you know, slot wheel or the roulette wheel or whatever your fam- favorite gambling analogy might be and, and go to the journal directly. But I think it actually gives you the best odds of getting your paper evaluated fairly. And that's the best thing that you can actually want in the process. Well, it was great pleasure to have you, uh, Hamid. It was really great fun talking to you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And thank you again to the team as well at Review Commons. Um, It's really made a big impact. Thank you again, Tiago, for taking me down memory lane. You can explore more of the Malik Lab science at research.fredhutch.org. To find out more about refereed preprints, you can go to reviewcommons.org. Thank you for listening to the Embo Podcast. Thank you.